Hi, this is Brian Choi with the Food Institute, and welcome to the Food Institute podcast. This week, we are speaking with Howard Dorman, National Practice Leader of Food and Beverage at Mazars USA, a global accounting, tax, and consulting firm with significant national presence in strategic U.S. geographies. But first, whether you are a first-time or regular listener, we ask that you share this episode on your social media platforms. It helps us expand our reach, and we really appreciate it when you do so. With that said, I'll welcome Howard to the show. How are you today? Good morning, Brian. I'm great, and I want to thank you for your continued support with Mazars. You do know that we uh, really enjoy our partnership that we've developed over the years and all the things that we do with you, and I, I appreciate you having me on this morning. Great, and we appreciate your time and the relationship that we have with you, uh, uh, Howard and Mazars. So, you know, uh, to get things started, uh, Howard, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, can you share a little bit about um, your background and also about um, Mazars and what Mazars does for food and beverage companies? Perfect. So um, I've been practicing in the New Jersey marketplace for 40 years as a um, traditional accountant and specializing in a test and tax services with a lot of consulting for mid-market companies. Um, at Mazars, we go to market by industry, and I've been uh, the national practice leader of the food and beverage group now for coming on three years. And we have a dedicated team, Brian, of about 25 professionals in food and beverage. We manage approximately here in the US, 250 food and beverage relationships up and down the supply chain from what we like to call from farm to fork, agriculture, through the supply chain, including manufacturing, distribution, importing, exporting, all the way up through uh, to retail, convenience stores, restaurants, including QSRs, fine dining, and franchises. Um, in, in addition to what we do here in the U.S., we are in 90 countries. Uh, with about 25,000 people worldwide. So exponentially, you can imagine how many food and beverage companies we do represent. Um, one thing that's really cool here, Brian, you know, we've been traditionally a middle market firm, but Mazars, we do have a, um, a global presence. And with that, we do service a lot of multinational companies. So we will be representing a lot of their U.S. operations and subsidiaries of very large owned companies that are located throughout the world. So we do have that middle market. We do have that large corp. And of course, we service the emerging companies as well. And we, as you mentioned in the intro, we do service some of the larger markets, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, LA, um, our new office now in Dallas and Miami, uh, together with smaller offices spread out throughout the US. Great. Uh, so it seems like you are a perfect person to be talking about uh, the topic on this on this podcast. Um, so with that, I'll start off with our first question, Howard. You know, so what what are the top trends that you're currently seeing in the current market within food and beverage? How about staying alive? <laughs> you know, um, I, I want to stay away from food trends. I don't think food trends other than eating habits have changed a lot, obviously, um, during this pandemic. So, you know, what you're seeing is that center aisle in the, in the retail stores has come back. You know, as a kid growing up, 
we did a lot of baking. We did a lot of cooking at home. It seems to all revert back to that. But um, I, I think the biggest change we're seeing is is the slight disruption in the supply chain. You know, you can't say that it's centered around one one product, one sector. You know, in the beginning, there was trouble or issues with uh, protein, chicken, and meat. Um, and I, I just think it was the pressure put upon the supply chain in order to meet the needs that were going on. Mm-hmm. So you, you do see, you know, there was a report that came out, you know, Brian, might have even, it, it probably was in your, your newsletters as well, as, you know, the retailers were only able to fill about 90% of their shelves in general, whatever it is that's short. Right. What I find troubling right now is ice cream you can't find as much. Mm-hmm. Um, I do love my blue bunny ice cream cones, and <laughs> it's very difficult to find them in the stores. So things things move around. Um, you know, it was toilet paper, it was white paper. Um, so I, I think what some of the trends we're seeing is how companies are pivoting to second and third tier suppliers, developing relationships with new co-packers, and um, you know, we we do some. Uh, work in communications with the private label manufacturing association and you know and how they're working closely with their retail and building their private brands as well and you know we're seeing a lot of innovation you know with without a doubt on it um and the pivoting which we'll go into a little bit later but how um a lot of the companies um that might have been a broadline distributor selling mostly into food service and restaurants, in order to stay afloat, they've had to pivot. And some of them have pivoted very successfully into uh, direct-to-consumer or direct-into-retail. So, Right. Yeah, so we'll definitely get into the whole survival uh, mode in our next question. And you mentioned a key term of pivoting, right? Um, So what we're seeing on the Food Institute side is something very similar. Companies are forced to adapt. And, you know, one of the things that we've written about in our content is that the pandemic has accelerated this move of pivoting, adjusting, um, transformation within business models. Um, And so, absolutely, you know, we're we're in in agreement with, uh, with what you just said. Um, I want to touch on touch upon one of the events that you recently had at Mazars, and that's the the virtual event uh, where you had Arrow Farms and Blue Nalu. So this is a different sort of uh, trend that um, that we're seeing on our side is the level of innovation, right? And so, uh, from your standpoint as the the national practice leader of food and beverage, what were some of the main takeaways from that event that um, that you'd like to share with our audience? That's a great question. You know, every industry's had to pivot during this pandemic. So in our case here in the food and beverage, in the past, we we had hosted three to four physical events every year in our major markets, attracting 200, 250 C-level people to hear a great panel discussion amongst food and beverage leaders as well as good networking. So here we are in March and April, what are we going to do to supplement that? And in, in July, we did our first virtual event, a little nervous 
about doing it, didn't know what the expectations would be. Mm-hmm. The, the good thing is we had two great speakers in um, Blue Nalu with Luke Cooperhouse and with uh, Aero Farms and Mark Oshima. And uh, for us, the event went great. I mean, the attendance was great. Feedback was great. Um, and we do plan on rolling these out now for the next four quarters because our mandate is we will not be doing any physical events uh, until next uh, September. That's mm. the way that uh, our management has worked. And we're seeing that happening across all industries. So what you know, the takeaway here, again, goes back to that keyword innovation. It's not disruption. These are not companies that are disrupting the marketplace. Um, Aero Farms, an indoor vertical farm, you know, using, um, uh, growing their leafy greens aeropotically, uh, it's, they're not going to take over the world. What mm-hmm. they're going to provide is a supplement to an already existing supply chain that's under strain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you think about, you know, leafy greens are grown all around the world. They're being exported, imported brought across by rail, by truck, subject to weather conditions and all the other things that go on. And here their concept is building pods across the world, Mm -hmm. um, servicing certain markets. And what they expect to grow is going to be a pure supplement. And if you look in your retail stores right now, especially in the New York region, um, you're going to find their product in here. And it's it's definitely like the invasion of the body snatchers. It's tech- <laughs> technology meeting food and beverage where they can control the environment. They control the taste and the color and, and the savory flavor behind it. And um, it's raised awareness if you look at who their supporters and their investors are worldwide. Um, it's, it's here. And right. it's going to stay. Um, Blue Nalu and uh, Lou Cooperhouse. Lou is a New Jersey boy, um, good friend of the firm, as well as Mark Oshima. And I think Blue Nalu, even though it's in the seafood space, again, it, it fits the same model. It's supplementing a supply chain that we believe is deteriorating, you know, mm-hmm. in the oceans, uh, pollution, um, growing population how do we service everybody and um if you look at what the plant-based market has done over the last 10 years um, to where it is now and how it's really reared you know its head over this pandemic Mm -hmm. i think the cell-based um world is right is right there with it you know you see the seafood you see the chicken i mean there was some large large negotiations done with with uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken in Russia, where they're mm-hmm. now going to be uh, bringing in cell-based chicken. So again, it's here. It's, a, it's an alternative. Um, you know, I did not taste plant-based uh, meat until two years ago when I attended, uh, I believe it was Expo West. Mm-hmm. And um, you know what? I mean, there's, there's myths about it. Um, I guess we'll find out in 20, 25 years from now if it really, <laughs> if it really is the healthy thing for us. But right. look, look, I was a kid growing up drinking water from a hose on the side of a house <laughs> in a town that probably had lead poisoning. So um, <laughs> right. you know, 
and here I am. So, um, so I think the two companies, even though in different ends of the spectrum of food, um, mm-hmm. are really pioneers in what they're doing. And, um, and again, with, with Blue Nalu, it's met with such positive reaction. Again, looking at who's investing in Blue Nalu. And, mm-hmm. and you, Blue Nalu is not shy. They'll tell you who's involved. But they have, you know, it's not only worldwide investors, they've got worldwide players that are, are in the food and pet food industry that are investing in this process. And I think that says a lot to what's coming around the corner. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, innovation is a topic that, you know, we can probably spend it over an hour just talking about. And uh, but I'd like to switch gears and, and bring it back to one of the comments you made earlier in, in our conversation about survival. Right. So a lot of our companies that we're seeing and probably what you're seeing, uh, Howard, they're in survival mode. Um, revenues are down anywhere from 10 to 30, even 40 percent. Um what is Mazars seeing as it relates to advising clients as um, during the survival mode? So, and as a follow-up question, if you can highlight a couple of companies where uh, Mazars is doing specific work um, and uh, and share that with our audience, I think that would be very helpful. That's great. You know, one thing that we do fancy ourselves, even though we are in a traditional accounting firm, I I believe that our partners and our professional staff have pivoted over the years to be business advisors. And I think that's really shown over the last six months. I mean, we have certain sectors that just got hammered, Brian. Um, You know, we represent uh, various... um, um, operators, what they're con- considered prime operators in the um, airport industry, you know, where they actually own and operate terminals in a, in a lot of the airports around the world, um, especially on their retail side with food and beverage and other retail items. Um, so th- that's an industry that is in survival mode, hopefully slowly coming back here. Uh, We've done some services there about just talking about survival. How do we cut back to a bare bone? How do we preserve capital? These are the things that we're talking with about our clients. You know, the preservation of the fabric of our company. Mm -hmm. How do we we maintain the key assets, future cash flow potential? And how do we prioritize and look at the options that are available for these companies? We, We have companies that are just in the middle of it. And they're in a, you know, they've been able to go maybe on the retail side where their um, online presence in the past has been in, I guess, in concert with the rest of the country. You know, online business might have been 7 to 10% of their business. That is spiked. You, you know that. That's spiked right. at 25, 30%. How were they able to handle that with um, obviously manpower? Um, cybersecurity risks, things mm-hmm. of that nature. And um, we've been able to utilize a lot of our consulting team and working with our customers on making sure that their their boundaries are safe. Employee safety has been uh, obviously a key. You know, we can talk hours about that. You know, what comes first? You know, employee safety and consumer safety. Mm-hmm. But but then came then came PPP, you know, the <laughs> 
the end of March, beginning of April, um, you know, a great a, a great idea to bring into a well-needed situation in our country. And as we all know, as this started the very beginning of April, the rules were changing constantly. I know we, we as a firm, I, I can't imagine how many webcasts that we actually put on. And every day the, the rules were changing and we're just trying to stay on top of it with our clients right. was a major task for our professional staff and how to maneuver um, through all the nuances and to project out. So, you know, a lot of the strategic planning, um, it wasn't quite clear in the beginning. You know, hindsight, we're really good at hindsight, aren't we all, Brian? We're really good <laughs> right. at it. Right. So in hindsight, looking at April 1st, clearly eight weeks, which was the initial program, was clearly not sufficient time. Right. They, they, they righted it and they've amended it and they did, I, I think, a, a really good job on that. Uh, but always the big question was, I can't put any more debt on my books and how do we get this to be forgiven? So the planning started going in there because a lot of these companies furloughed people, they cut back time on people. And as time was going through, uh, the forgiveness uh, part of the loans were coming out how to get to that point with full-time equivalents and everything else so we worked carefully with with management managing workload and you know we got to the point with some of the people that they were just happy to get this influx of capital and they were going to worry about at the end of the at the end of the term if i get it all forgiven great if part part of it becomes a loan it's at very favorable rates right and we can do that but it's also then working with the banks. And, you know, some of the banks, most of the banks were working with companies. If, if a company, you know, Brian, in your opening comment, you said some of the companies lost 30, 40% of their business. Right. Um, some of the banks were, were aware of it and were very careful and tightening up on them. But we find the more communicative you are, uh, we have clients that were on weekly calls with the bank talking about what's going on, you know, where the availability is at, constantly looking at the benchmarks and um, covenants on what we can and can't do. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and here we are in September already, and we're changing focus a little bit now, saying, okay, you know, the year wasn't great. It was a good year. What are we going to do now between now and the end of the year? You know, what, mm -hmm. what's, what's the normal going to look like? And we have to start getting ready for some year-end planning, both on the financial end and on the tax end. And um, how do we balance that? And I, we see a lot of companies, Brian, now that are, are giving back. Uh, we, we've had a few clients that uh, required pay cuts across the board mm -hmm. and not only restoring salaries, but in some cases actually giving some back pay. And, you know, part of the, you know, the first priority is keeping our people safe and close to us and happy. The second part of it is if that helps us restore our full-time equivalents to mm -hmm. the day of reckoning and we can get forgiveness on the loans, then right. you know what? Then it's been a home run for everybody. So I'm, I'm trying to keep the conversation upbeat. <laughs> there's, there's such a downside to everything. 
Right. But, um, you know, just going back, um, you know, you, you asked me to talk about a couple of the pivots that we've seen. So we, we, um, we, we represent a lot of distributors um, that are in so many different um, areas. And uh, in, in one case, we have a, an importer. Lead time is very long. Mm-hmm. So they might be out two months placing orders, products on the on the waters coming in. And you can imagine come April 1st, retail restaurants, you know, what gets hit the hardest, food service. And, you know, some of our clients were importing food for food service. So now they're sitting with inventory, you know, excessive inventory here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Stable, not a problem. You know, it, it could stay. We're not um, talking about any and any particular inventory that's going to be deemed bad because of COVID, uh, we were getting some tax relief on that. There were some um, part of the CARES Act, you know, we can go back to restate 2019 and write down some inventory. So there was some relief in that. But now it's a matter of how do you manage it? So you've had, we've had clients that had to go out, secure additional space in order to save you know, to, to uh, store the goods. And over time, they've been able to do it, but it, now it's managing your supply chain. So mm-hmm. we were working carefully with this particular company on, um, on extending some of the lines of credit and ensuring that um, we're able to get through this period through some very careful cash flow analysis. And, you know, you, you can imagine when you're doing forecasts, you know, how optimistic you are. <laughs> but right. which I've never seen in all my years, a forecast that didn't show great things happening. But here we had to really scale it back and say, OK, where, where's where's the low point in this? And let's build from there. And a lot of decisions were made about that because really you got to preserve the fabric of your company. You have to protect shareholder capital investment. Right. You do have to maintain current income and livelihood for your shareholders, your managers, and your staff. That, that's been a very important fabric in, in most of our clients, to be very honest, is just maintaining the lifestyles. The meat and potatoes of our firm are middle market. A lot of them are family-owned, second, third, fourth-generation companies. So you can imagine how they do take care of their employees, their family. And that's right. important. And then obviously the last piece is ensuring that our debt is being paid, that we're in good financial standing. So we do go through all these all these steps. Um, we have one one client in particular, um, a, um, a restaurant group, QSRs. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say they had about 15 or 18 establishments in a major metropolitan area. And come April 1st, they shut down. I mean, wow. they really assessed what was going on and they, they felt it was easier shutting down, keeping some people on, furloughing others and kind of a waiting game and assess what's going to happen. Uh, we sat down with management right after and we did a um, shareholder priority and strategic option, like a decision mm-hmm. matrix. What are we going to do with what we know on April 1st? Right. PPPs coming around the corner. Restaurants weren't opening to a certain extent. 
um, especially in the major markets. And we started assessing how and when we can open, how do we open, which stores do we open, and started plugging in some forecast information, um, you know, assuming uh, different rates, 25%, 50% capacity. I mean, right. we were thinking of these things even before the governments were handing down mandates. And they, they stayed shuttered probably until middle June, applied for the PPP, second round, and opened up a couple of key locations just to keep just to keep it open. I mean, breaking even, you know, you have to always worry about your brand because mm-hmm. it's in, in any in any sector. And I would say right now they're probably at fifty percent of the stores are open. Several of them probably will not open. And um, they're still you know what's going on in, in the major cities. It's still a battle. It's still a battle to stay open. You know, in New York, it's tough. You don't have you don't have the sidewalk space that we have out here in the suburbs. Right. Um, we see some restaurants out here in the suburbs that have more space outside <laughs> than they did inside. Um, and New Jersey, um, starting tomorrow, we're going to twenty five percent inside. Right. So um, that's a huge know, step. It's a huge step in so many ways, and you know, obviously, right. our guards are up on it. Um, but so these are the things on the business advisory side, um, that we've been helping our clients. And and I must say, um, you know, we always, we always say to stay in contact with our clients. Um, some clients we talk to all the time, some clients, it's a quarterly meeting, it's a monthly meeting and, and some it's annual audits, you know, a white glove approach, couple of manager meetings. I must say, um, communications has stepped up. We've been working hand in hand with a lot of our clients, and I think mm-hmm. it's I think it's furthered um, our relationship with them. And they're really looking at us now, really as a true trusted advisor. And and I think that's a key takeaway for us at Lazar's. I mean, we can look back upon this and say, you know what, uh, we all did good on this one. Right. No, that's that's a huge point, you know, um, especially in this in this time where we can't meet face to face, having that regular touch point and continuing to build that relationship. That's what one of the things that I've seen here at the Food Institute is reaching out to folks and asking how to be how we could be helpful to them. And I'm sure you're doing it on on the Mazar side that that means a whole that that means so much to them. Right. And and. You know, that's that's that whole family atmosphere. And I think that's one of the things in the food industry that I really particularly appreciate is that it's though it's a large industry, people in general, whether you're a competitor or not, it's there's a sense of camaraderie. Right. And and you see that not only in, in the industry as a whole, but even even within these businesses. And so, you know, that's one of my um, optimistic things that I that I'm seeing is that the level of of communication and care, right? Um, and yeah, I think that's that's something that um, that's something that will continue going forward, and I think will help the industry overall. Um, I want to pivot a little bit, um, and we I want to talk about the election, and I don't want this to be a, a political discussion. But, oh boy! Oh boy! <laughs> but um, you know, as we're approaching November, 
obviously there's there's a lot of uncertainty uh, which administration is going to take um, you know take office next year. And so, from your perspective as a business advisor, um, advising many different types of food and beverage companies, what should companies be preparing for um, as November approaches or even towards the end of the year? You know, um, whether it's estate or tax planning or some other issues, you know, what what can you tell these food companies on of how they should be preparing? Boy, Brian, you really want to be controversial. No, this is not <laughs> this is not controversial. You know, in any time when there's a proposed, even if it's not an election year, whenever there's any type of tax proposals out there, whether to increase, decrease, um, you know, increase estate tax exemptions, decrease them. There's always an element of planning. So, you know, it's just compounded a little bit because of the election and what would the apparent uh, gap in here. So, you know, so we're, we're all surmising that if, if the um, current administration stays in place, that certain things will stay in place. The estate tax exemptions will stay in place. Um, tax rates might stay where they're at, whether it's favorable, unfavorable, if there's a change. But remember, if there's a change in the White House, there also has to be a change in the Senate and the House to get things done. Um, so whenever there's that question mark, we always err on conservatism. And in a lot of our family-owned companies, we always emphasize uh, generational planning, estate planning. And I, I think there's an opportunity now, um, if in fact, let, let's take a wild uh, stab at this and say there is a change in the administration and mm -hmm. even maybe in the Senate and it, it, it goes to the Democrat side and we all you know, have these fears that they're going to do away with the estate tax exemption and everything else. So one of the key planning topics here is well, let's sit down now with your professionals and, and what can we do? Can we take advantage of the current structure? Because if you now step in, do a plan, gift, sell, whatever you decide to do, I mean, within the family and take advantage of the current um, estate tax exemption, it will be grandfathered. So if there is a change in the law, <clears throat> excuse me, in 2021, you're covered. So mm -hmm. you should be sitting down with your accountant, with with us, of course, um, <laughs> or with, and your attorney and your financial planners in looking at um, what's left in your gift tax exemptions. Um, go out, have valuations done. You know, we, we've talked about how companies have pivoted. It'll be great. I mean, I, I would be very happy to say if my client's company is valued more today than it was a year ago. Mm -hmm. during this pandemic well that's great okay that means business has been good but all in all if if the business valuation comes down because of the pandemic and it gives you an advantage to come in revalue you know evaluate the company and then you could do some gifting then it could be a home run for for you and the family so that would be taking advantage of the current tax situation and if there is no change in the administration, well, guess what? You still have done your estate planning mm -hmm. and hopefully you moved out some assets that have some very uh, 
good opportunities of growing in the future. Now you moved it out to the, to the next generation. So, you know, I, I think that's a low hanging fruit for a lot of people. And, and I hope a lot of people are in that situation where they, where they can do that. So um, as far as tax planning, look, we're coming to the fourth quarter. You know, things are like they have been in the past. We have profits. How do we reduce the profits? How do we take advantage of the different tax rates? You know, there's still things, you know, bonus depreciation. If you've made improvements into your facility, a lot of companies have invested or reinvested in their company over mm-hmm. the last six months. So how do we take advantage of that? Um, research and development credits. So there's still a lot of things that are on the table. Now the time is to plan for it, but you also have to be careful um, to balance that now against your financial needs regarding your banking relationships, covenants. You know, it's great to plan for tax, but you got to be careful on being able to show still the financial uh, sustainability to the banks. Yeah, I know that. So who's the good guy and the bad guy here? You got the government, you got the banks. So (laughs) you, you have to satisfy everybody here. So, you know, there there's some carryover from um, the CARES Act that companies should be aware of. Um, I would consult with your accountants on any year-end planning. You have, you have time to do it now. And you've gotten through what I would think for a lot of companies, a really crazy time. Um, hopefully, right. you're all taking some time off now for the Labor Day weekend. Um, but as you get now into the middle of September... Um, you know, now you have decisions to be made, and some decisions are not clear yet. So everybody's got their PPP money. PPP money came in starting first week in April all the way through maybe June. Maybe people are still applying for some PPP money, and they have a 24-week period to report off of. So if you got money, let's say, April 15th, so four, 24 weeks is six weeks. So you're talking the middle of October mm-hmm. is when you're going to have to start reporting to the banks and the SBA about what happened. How, do, how did you make out over this pandemic and your application for forgiveness? What we don't know is how long it's going to take the SBA and the banks to analyze this information and come back with their uh, findings. Right. And is that going to happen in 2020 or 21? And if you ask the tax people, if the, if the banks and the SBA come back, let's say, beginning of January or end of January and say, okay, you know, you're forgiven on 90% of it. What year is that impacting? Is it mm-hmm. 2020 or 21? And it does have an impact because as of right now, the amount, the loan that's being forgiven is not taxable. Mm-hmm. That's been very clear. But the expenses that were paid with the PPP money under current law is not deductible. Mm-hmm. So what impact is that going to have on your business? So some careful planning has to be done here and trying to balance what happens if this gets thrown into this year or next year. Um, so just these are just things that people have that are going to keep people up at night to worry about and just to reach out to your professionals and have those conversations now like yeah. anything else. 
Well, that's that's helpful, Howard. Um, and um, so this about wraps it up for you know the Food Institute podcast. We we spoke about PPP, estate planning, tax planning, innovation, cost cutting, and um, and so Howard, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and Mazars? You can go to www.mazarsusa.com forward backslash FB as in food beverage. Um, over the last uh, two months, Brian, like yourself, I became a daytime podcast uh, host. Um, I guess I'll be fighting for you for our daytime Emmys come up in uh, November. So you can find some of our content as well um, on the interviews that I've been doing, but you'll see all the content we're doing there. Um, and you can reach out to me at Dorman at MazarsUSA.com as well. And Brian, I want to thank you for allowing me to share with you what we're doing here at Mazars. Um, very proud of the work that we've done. I'm very proud of my partners and the professionals and um, the way that we handle things during this pandemic. And uh, I hope to our listening audience, everybody is healthy and safe. Great. Well, we'll definitely share the relevant links in the description of this episode. So once again, I'd like to thank Howard for his time today. Remember, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. If you'd like to learn more about the Food Institute, please take a look at the links in our description to learn more about us and what membership could do for you and your company. Until next time, this is Brian Choi signing off.